Assalamu alaikum, brothers and sisters. Welcome back to another episode of the Remaster Podcast, hosted by me, your brother, Abdullah Freeman. And we're here joined with a very, very special guest. I have the privilege of today, mashallah, of hosting Dr. Hatim Bezian, who is a faculty member at UC Berkeley, as well as the chairman for American Muslims for Palestine, as well as a co-founder of Zaytuna College. So, Doc, it's great to have you on. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's good to be with you. Subhanallah. Like, Dr. Hatim, I was just looking at the time and I was like, since October, I was like, wait, it's December. It's been two months that this unhuman-like siege has been laid upon the Palestinian people and it's genocide. I mean, it's it's crazy that it's, it's been two months already. You know, it feels longer than that, but it also feels shorter than that, if you know what I mean. We're almost on our 70th day of uh, uh, almost unrestrained uh genocide on the Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, Close to 70% of all homes have been uh, either totally destroyed or partially destroyed. Uh, Over a million and a half of the Gaza population is already uh, without home, without uh, any of the services. Uh, No water, uh, no food, no fuel, no medicine. Uh, And before that, it was already 15 years an open-air prison it's not that they were from a complete normal life they were already under uh, one of the most difficult circumstances and now followed by um, the seventh largest military campaign over gaza in that period Uh, the numbers uh, are already about 22,000 killed uh, murdered outright by israeli military Uh, Close to 9,000 of them are children. Uh, Another uh, maybe three to 4,000 of women. So the overwhelming majority of those who have been uh, murdered by the Israeli military are uh, children and women. Considering that Gaza's population, uh, 43%, 43.1% of the population are children. Uh, So when the uh, Israeli defense minister said, we are aiming for uh, destruction, not accuracy. Uh, it's basically destroying uh, the life of the population and uh, all the basic needs uh, that are there. So we're 70 days ongoing on this uh, genocide uh, that is unfolding in real time and shared almost, it's the first time in history that you have a, a genocide that is shared in real time on social media, on, inter- on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and yet the political elites and the political ruling class are totally silent, if not aiding and abetting uh, Israel by extending support to it as we speak. SubhanAllah. I mean, just the fact alone that, you know, that statement, we're aiming for destruction, not accuracy, like, it's kind of a juxtaposition, right? Because if you think about Bani Israel, that's what Firan was doing, right? He was aiming just to destroy, you know, and how many 2,000 years later, the same thing is being applied to another group of people only by them, right? And it's subhanAllah. You know, but we're going to dive deep into Palestine and Islamophobia and many things. And, you know, Dr. Hatim, that brings me to the point of Islamophobia. So before we begin deeper, please define to us what is Islamophobia? Like, could I say Islamophobia is a fear of Islam? Because most people, when they hear the word phobia, it's indicating a fear, a fear of something. You know, please break that down. For yeah, 
before we begin, we'd like to just say, please uh, donate today to Mercy Without Limits. Please, like I said before in the previous episode, since we started this initiative, donate to help the causes around the world, especially Palestine. We're not supporting a war. We're trying to save children and save women, save innocent lives, inshallah. Also, please support American Muslims for Palestine right now during this time period because... Well, the term itself, Islamophobia, actually emerged first in the French context um, mm. uh, during the period of uh, early part of the 20th century, 1910. Uh, the term uh, in French, Islamophobia, it was defined as mm. having inimical feelings toward Islam and Muslims. Uh, just to think about it, the French had a very... Uh, violent uh, uh, focus on Muslims during their colonial period, whether it's in North Africa, in uh, Central Africa, in the, uh, West Africa. Uh, the French wanted to extract Islam out of the population. Uh, so it reflected their attitudes and perspective in negative way toward Islam and Muslims. And people tend to forget that the work of Franz Fanon, uh, who was in Algeria, uh, as a uh, psychiatrist dealing with the, with the victims of torture from the French and ended up uh, dealing with both the, the victims of torture and the torturers and then left his job uh, at being part of uh, the psychiatry from the French and joined the Algerian Liberation Front, uh, where he wrote some of his most important books. Thereafter, became one of the spokespeople for the Algerian Liberation Front. Uh, so when we read uh, Wretched of the Earth, uh, by Franz Fanon, or uh, the dying colonialism, uh, or uh, uh, black face, white mask. All these books came out of the context of the French uh, colonial entanglement with Islam and Muslims. So in the most recent period, uh, the initial definition in terms of circulation was by the Rumi Trust, which says, which really said to have an irrational fear of Islam and Muslims, which I think it's a little bit was an initial attempt to try to define the phenomena in the modern period, especially post-1979 uh, Iranian revolution. Uh, but there are a number of definitions. One is actually by uh, our colleagues in the UK, uh, the oral parliamentary uh, group, where it says Islamophobia is rooted in racism and is a type of racism uh, that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. So that's one way to think of uh, Islamophobia as a type of racism. Now, I know that some people who are uh, possibly smart aleck and maybe they think they're smart, well, Islam is not a race. And uh, that's correct. Maybe you read something that says this, but people can be racialized for a variety of reasons. The best example, again, mm -hmm. uh, the Jewish population uh, faces racism relative to anti-Semitism, which is the religious identity of the Jews, especially within the long historical period of European discourse. Uh, but no one says, well, this is not really accurate because uh, Jews are not a race. Uh, so racism uh, as a element has many features of how groups and communities gets to be uh, racialized. So uh, Muslims are racialized because of their religious identity uh, or perceived to be uh, to having a religious identity. The second aspect is that the overwhelming majority of Muslims uh, actually uh, are from the global south, which means that they are of darker complexion. Uh, they look more like me and you. And therefore, it's also accurate to think of Islamophobia 
as a way of uh, really conceptualizing white supremacy as it relates to Islam and Muslims as being the rejected, the uncivilized faith uh, of those who are seen to be subhuman. So there's that dimension to it when we speak of Islamophobia as a type of racism uh, that attempts to look at or uh, express sentiments against Muslims relative to that identity. And interestingly enough, when we think about, let's say, uh, those who are perceived Muslims, uh, we could see that, uh, for example, Sikhs often tends to be confused uh, by the racist uh, of being Muslims. Not, not that we want to give a credit to the racist that they're nuanced and sophisticated to know the different types of turbans. That's too much advance for them because they're usually uh, are, uh, response to only one picture and they cannot go beyond yeah. that choice. So they tend to often uh, relate to individuals who might appear to be Muslim uh, with the same type of animus and the same type of uh, animosity, sometimes violence, uh, verbal uh, abuse, discriminations, and so on. Subhanallah. You know, Dr. Hatem, just to, you know, because France, as of recently, has been really big on their anti-Islamic tropes, I mean, in the last couple of years, and they're more outward than most of the other Western countries. What is the relationship between, like, why were they trying to extract extract this Islam out of the populations that they tried to colonize? And also, like, why does France in particular, out of all of the Western nations, really have a really terrible relationship with religion, right? Like, as you see in the French Revolution, like, it was very, get rid of religion. Everything must go, like, it has to be secularized. Yeah. Well, one can at least uh, locate French experience with the Catholic Church and the role of uh, religion in the French context, uh, the divine right of king, uh, the abuse that has been lived upon uh, relative to European experience in France in particular. So the French Revolution uh, arriving at a particular historical period in the corruption of the church and the corruption of the ruling uh, royal uh, elites within Europe produced the French Revolution. Uh, however, as we come into the modern period, um, especially as France, France became the, main, the major colonial power in Africa, uh, uh, France sees itself uh, as when we say civilization, there is civilization relative that French defines civilization. There is no other thing other than the French civilization. So wow. the act of Muslims wanting to be continuously Muslim uh, tugs at one of the pillars of uh, the French as the incubators of civilization itself. Uh, more mm -hmm. so in the more contemporary period as the number of Muslims in France increased, which are predominantly actually come in from the uh, ex-colonies, uh, which also gets us into the post-colonial period, did not end the importation of colonial subjects to do the menial work, uh, to be deployed in the suburbs. Uh, so that resulted in the right wing to begin with in France, asserting uh, the defense of French identity. And that developed, and whenever you speak about the French identity, we're speaking about a racist construct because French identity is being described as being white, uh, being uh, Christian, even though that they're no longer practicing the post-Christianity, but Christian Christianity as an identity relative to other communities in there. And also for 
post-colonial subject, it has to be a rejection of your particular type of identity. And in here, Muslims, because of their critical mass, represents uh, this, this notion. Uh, mm-hmm. Lastly, in the French context of Islamophobia, as the French state, uh, uh, neoliberal economics, uh, globalization have failed, uh, in a similar way here in the United States, rather than critiquing the underpinning of trickle-down economics, neoliberal economics, you begin to look at the weaker segments of the society and project the problem on them. Uh, mm-hmm. We are very accustomed here in the United States is blaming the Mexican mm-hmm. labor, uh, uh, blaming the blacks for uh, benefiting from the welfare state. All this are literally uh, not wanting to address the problem of neoliberal economics, trickle-down economics that rewarded the rich and punished the poor. Uh, And as such, the Muslims, both in France and also in other parts of Europe, are used as the scapegoat uh, with projecting and throwing on the Muslim subject all elements of failure of the French state, uh, of the British state, of the Dutch and Norwegian and so on, rather than looking at the whole uh, experimentation, economic experimentation beginning in the 1980, uh, that today have completely emptied the notion of the social contract, the notion of a welfare state, with the welfare state become transformed into a negative, rather than the society taking care of those who are have less means or those that needed a safety net. Uh, we have a welfare state for the rich and the corporations, Nobody actually complains about it. Nobody actually says to the banks who took $770 billion rescue, nobody chased them out and say, you're taking money, how you're lazy bums on the banks. Mm-hmm. Nobody actually chased them. Nobody problematized their genes. Nobody actually tried to look whether they have a single mother household or that they're using drugs, maybe more of refined cocaine because they could afford it. Right? <laughs> no, no way to problematize this. It becomes problematizing the poor and those who are dispossessed. And increasingly, France uses the same type of tropes that were used in here in the United States for the longest period uh, in terms of uh, racializing the problem, uh, using the poor as the avenue for why our society is facing failure, using all kinds of notions in that way. So that's what we're experiencing in France. And I would say similar dynamics here in the United States, maybe not to the same. I think the United States does not regulate uh, expressions of Muslimness, meaning the way that you're wearing a kufi or a uh, or sarwal kameez or you have a beard. The United States does not really worry about that much unless you're wearing a Palestinian kufi. That's a sec- another issue. Uh, but the United States tries to surveil people. Uh, so surveillance, hyper-surveillance, modes of control that is different, but yet almost to the same type of ill effect. Wow. Subhanallah. I was going to even actually ask about the United States ways in which they do it, but you actually just brought that up. And subhanAllah, it's, it's very interesting to see how these tropes can control the, I guess, miseducated population. And then you're able, I see how you're able to get figures like Trump-like figures, for lack of a better term, who come and preach to these certain feelings and notions. And then the people rally behind because they feel this is the answer or savior to the solution. So regardless of if it's logical or if it's not logical, it speaks to their reality. And it's like, subhanAllah, that's... Wow. Well, again, in political campaigns, it's very easy what you call formula. You have race, mm-hmm. uh, drugs, and crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the three. And if you look at them, all the three of them are highly racialized in American mm-hmm. discourse, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when we talk about, let's say, drugs, uh, everybody is bent out of shape about the drugs and the homeless and the opioid addiction and so on, rightly so. Uh, mm-hmm. But the question is, how did we get here? 
-hmm. how did opioid became so uh, uh, prevalent in our street? Well, you have to go to ask the pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. and to say that from 1999 until 2018, 2019, they were allowed a free hand to distribute. Uh, so, you know, they, they really are the corner drug dealers, right? Mm -hmm. We call them Walgreens, uh, CVS, mm -hmm. and so on. They were the primary agents responsible for the opioid uh, pandemic that we are facing. Oh. And also simultaneously, uh, they were rewarded because the uh, board of directors of pharmaceutical companies were given immunity. Uh, and even the $26 billion fine that they have paid now is going to be reduced. Uh, and some of them have shifted their money, especially the Sackler family that shifted its money uh, away. So basically, you're going to have a $26 billion uh, fine. All of the major uh, uh, drug moms and pops companies were involved in it from CVS, Walgreens, uh, the best is Johnson & Johnson. Not only Ooh. that it have oh, powdered yeah. the tushy of babies, it also powdered the, the noses of all these people that ended up in the street. So you get, uh, and ironically, some Muslims also fall, fall into this because they begin to complain about the homeless in the street and the drug addicts in the street, and they would not like to take pictures with them, but they would go and take a picture with the uh, CEO of Walgreens, who is the drug dealer that's causing the person in the street, the one that's, quote, unclean and did not have wudu. So we're worried about the wudu, but we're not worried about the person who's causing the death uh, of millions. So this is, again, Muslims get trapped uh, because they want to literally they want to aspire to be in the companies of those people who are important and they perceive a suit and a tie make you important and clean while not having a suit and tie and being in the street being unclean that's just what you call our own mistaken perceptions of the reality and how the society that we're part of in essence gets to the position we are in today you know what that reminds me of dr hatim it reminds me of surah abasa you know yeah, we only accept, we want what you call the Muslim, somebody to convert to Islam if they're clean, shaven with a, the suit and tie, and if they make $200,000 takbir and so on. But we are not in what you call uplifting the society and transforming the society. And that's also part of the problem because if we are the people of transformation, mm -hmm. right? uh, in this sense, we are not understanding and often we get caught of our own uh, almost circular logic in this way. Subhanallah. So, you know, that's a great segue to for me to ask this as we uh, pr uh, progress through this conversation. Dr. Hatan, how did Muslimin go from being people who would like to associate with the fuqara, like the poor people, to being people who were, you know, like this and we stay away from this and ah, I can do that. This has to be like this. When did we get like that? Because, you know, I'm starting to what I want to do is kind of question how also what Islam and how Muslims were viewed pre the Khilafah and then after the Khilafah and then post 9-11 and all of this, you know? Well, uh, you have to trace this transformation in Muslim mind uh, mm -hmm. for almost 200, 250 years. Uh, this mm -hmm. uh, imitative project, uh, this embracing of uh, Eurocentricity as a view, uh, as Europe ascended uh, into power and status, which was on the back of uh, the genocide of the indigenous population and the genocide in the in the Americas, followed for also the genocide in uh, West Africa uh, with the slave uh, enslavement. Uh, Europe built its capacity, its its uh, econ its economy, its uh, military infrastructure on in those two 
major, major development, and then unleashed this uh, around the globe to have direct colonization. And as the colonization and the European ascendancy accelerated, uh, people mistaken the ascendancy of Europe and European uh, culture and civilization, and also the United States, uh, they mistaken uh, the outer manifestation with the inner meaning. So they began to imitate. They must have what you call discovered the meaning of life. Well, what they discovered is the utilitarian nature of mass death, meaning uh, the ability to kill large number of uh, people like never before with a military machine and uh, almost industrialization scale of death and destruction. So beginning in the mid 19th century, Muslims began to shift to embrace uh, in particular military sciences and also modes of conduct and uh, modes, modes of discourse that were prevalent uh, relative to uh, the European powers and mm-hmm. began to abandon the ethical, moral, and worldview of Islam and Muslims. In essence, during this period, late 19th century, early 20th century, meaning that you need to leave your Islam out because it's the cause of your failure. You have too much Islam in you, and what you need is to get rid of it. And that the modernity, uh, uh, nationalism that gets uh, introduced in the Muslim world was introduced on the womb of direct European colonization. So that results in the European... uh, colonial master, as well as later on after World War II, the ascendancy of the United States, they represent what you call the quintessential humans. When we say human, it represents that European-American human. And everyone in the globe have to aspire to be in proximity, to be like, to imitate the human. That's why... Isn't that called jingoism? The notion of human rights. Uh, Human rights was constructed around the European subject and the American subject. Sometimes we appeal to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights thinking that it includes us. It does not. It never did, even though that they brought us to the room to sign the Universal Declaration as what you call bringing the tribal leader so you would be happy. Uh, uh, the Four Geneva Convention was not applied to the global south. And if we look at the 20th century after the Second World War, uh, if we just look, the global south was decimated by uh, anti-colonial struggles. Mm-hmm. And we were... We were uh, struggling against the colonial powers that signed the Four Geneva Convention, mm-hmm. that were custodians of the Four Geneva Convention, that were signed signatories to the uh, Genocide Convention. Just the last settler colony to end in Africa was South Africa. That was 1992. Mm-hmm. That's just like yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. And the Western world, including the United States, uh, was a primary supporter of uh, apartheid South Africa till the last days. Uh, and even as Nelson Mandela was coming on the plane, his name was still included as a designated terrorist. Yeah, now, that tells you, mm-hmm. right? That tells you that the notion that people these days, uh, you talk to some of the people of uh, what you call liberal extra- extraction and people who hang out in important places like Starbucks and so on, mm-hmm. everyone gives you a story that they were in the forefront of anti-apartheid struggle, that they like Nelson Mandela. Uh, that just a large number of people of importance were actually the ones who were calling the police to arrest us. They were the people who were actually preventing from engaging in, uh, in the anti-apartheid struggle. At university, university presidents, administrators were actually uh, uh, almost resisting the divestment. Uh, we had students that had to line up to be arrested and, and be in civil disobedience for the University of California Berkeley to pass a resolution on divestment. 
right? So after the end of apartheid, uh, all of them lined up and began to really sing as if they liberated uh, South Africa, not the fact that they were still uh, suckling and uh, squeezing every last drop of milk from the apartheid system until it became untenable. So uh, in this sense, we have to uh, reorient ourselves when we say, uh, what does it mean to have a worldview rooted in Islam and Muslimness? We have to also extract from ourselves the articulation of Islam within a Eurocentric, what you call lens, uh, that uh, we have a filter. Uh, maybe I, I share the same notion with W.D. Dubois, the double consciousness. Uh-huh. Right? We do operate in the world as Muslims with the notion of double consciousness, that we are actually seeing the world through the lens of Eurocentricity, through the lens of the superiority of the West, and we're appealing for the West to see us as belonging, right? Mm. That we, inshallah, by God, maybe, you know, see me, I am here. Mm. And in this sense, we are losing the sense of seeing ourselves because the first element is to see and witness yourself before or uh, without having to appeal to the other to actually see you as a way for you to draw a meaning onto yourself. So that's the conundrum, the problem that we face as uh, Muslims, Muslims living in a modernity and uh, Muslims in the contemporary world that does not actually ascribe to us meaning nor allows us to witness ourselves as ourselves. Subhanallah. You know, Dr. Hatim, just listening to you bring that from where it was to then, one thing that really hits sparks and hits me, you know, one thing primarily, as you know, that's supremely important for Europe's advancement was the scientific revolution that they had, which came off of the heels of what? The Islamic golden era of science, mathematics, things of that nature, of the ilm that the scholars were producing at that time. But it almost like came back and bit us because then we tried to catch up with them, but then we started letting go of ourselves and the things that are important to us, that morality, that uh, the belief, you know, the, the the fiqh behind what we do as to everything. So to bring it to a modern day uh, lens, you could say, right? Let's let's bring it to modern day, right? With the issues happening with Palestine, you know, the first thing, right? Let's say if this was a show, if I wasn't a Muslim and this wasn't a Muslim-based show, Dr. Hatem, the first thing I would ask you is, Dr. Hatem Bazian, do you support Hamas? Right. That's like the first thing that's asked to every single body and every single person. How should Muslims go about answering this? Because I'm pretty sure besides being asked this on television, our common layman mm-hmm. Muslims are being asked this question as well. Dr. Hatem. Like every single thing, it's like they hit you with that first. Like, how do we respond to that? You know, well, the thing is that these are questions that have been asked of colonized people all throughout. And no colonized people have ever been asked about their history, about their suffering, about uh, the trauma that they have faced. It's always the uh, victimized uh, 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 in a colonial setting that is being asked of the moment that the, uh, uh, the possibility of continuity of victimization is seemed to be have been either challenged or have been raised into a higher level. The second part of the question is often trying to catch Muslims in a or Arabs, Palestinians and their supporters to be unempathetic. Right? Mm-hmm. No human being can be unempathetic. Right? Do we feel the suffering of a human being, of a Jewish person, uh, a, an African person, a Palestinian person? We do. No one uh, in their rightful mind would actually think that a mother missing her child, no matter what background he or she is, Uh, that you would not feel the empathy. 
But the question is here is, whose empathy, whom do we empathize with, at what moment, and whom we are erasing constantly? So it's not a question of that Hamas uh, engaged in uh, uh, violence that killed civilians. Uh, that's just a statement of fact that could be established. But the question that has to be asked is that we have a hundred years of Palestinians, civilians, Palestinian society, massacre after massacre, and the same journalist never posed the question to any Israeli or any uh, government official, uh, anyone, asking him about uh, condemnation. Right? There is. You could actually, uh, you know, Pierce Morgan. Uh, uh, horrendously begins every show right now where they have a Muslim. Well, like Doctor Hatem, that was the person who was number one in my mind for this. That no, no. guy uh, embarrasses again, himself. And the time. thing is that he thinks he's sophisticated. That's the problem, right? Right? Maybe like he has a lot of powder on his face when you get fair and lovely on your face before you go on the camera. You think that you're sophisticated, Conf yeah. not confusing what you call the brush on your face with the brush on your brain. So he thinks, right, coming mm -hmm. from this what you call Eurocentric liberal orientation, that he is actually. Uh, talking because he wants to create that he is such a higher level of human being, mm -hmm. right, compared to the person in front of him. It's not really a discussion. It's almost an interrogation that is taking place. Mm -hmm. This, if Pierce Morgan is to be taken, what you call seriously, on the level of empathy and level of sophistication, have he ever asked that question to any British politician that participated in the invasion and the destruction of Iraq? Have he actually asked this type of question to any of the Israeli politicians that not only called for the destruction and the leveling of Palestinians, they don't even want the Palestinians. They, actually, he sits down and listens to a person calling for ethnic cleansing in his show, and yet he does not ask that same question to them, right? Does, did he ask any of these questions to any of what you call people of importance? He interviewed some of the most important figures in the United States that participated in the invasion of Iraq, invasion of Afghanistan, destruction in Syria, invasion of Yemen, the war in Somalia, Libya, and you, you name it. Uh, why? Because, again, if you are trained within the liberal uh, Eurocentric uh, paradigm, your question to those who are subhuman, you're trying to ascertain do they have a genetic marker called violence? And you're trying to see whether they actually have the uh, qualities of a human. The quality of the human is to express empathy toward the pain and suffering of the others. So you hear the person said, violence returned to the Holy Land. Well, uh, excuse me, was violence busy? Did the violence would go into Greece uh, to have a, what you call a suntan and all of a sudden just returned on October 7th? Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, beginning from the beginning of the year, over 480 uh, Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank, not in Gaza Strip, but violence was missing. Maybe it was celebrating, you know, it was Valentine's Day and violence went out on vacation and just came back on October 7th. So this is what you call a, 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 a propensity of the Western discourse that is aligned with Israel. To think of Israeli crime and violence against the Palestinians as being justified, while violence of the Palestinians when it's committed is genetic. I would say it's the same type of dynamics, and here I'm going to migrate, to how violence of the black subject in our society is seen. So a black subject is seen to be genetically right, predisposed to violence. So the question becomes not that a police officer pulled his gun, shot the black man from the back, 10 or 15 or 20 bullets, right? The discussion becomes the black man, he's a threat for no other reason than being black. So in America, blackness is the cause of death, right? And therefore the discussion becomes to rationalize the shooting of the black subject 
and the discussion becomes almost excusing the police officer. And that's why we go into a whole series of questions about, you know, the, uh, the black person. We go into their record. Maybe they had they've been arrested at two years old when they had a diaper. And uh, so we get their record at, at this. We look at their school, whether they were expressed any violence. We look at whether they had a what you call been uh, given a, uh, a foul or a 15 yard penalty in a football game. And all this becomes the material, what you call uh, pieces to actually ascertain that there is a DNA marker. And that's why the police officer was justified, justifiable homicide, and therefore we don't actually take him. So it's the same if we take it from the treatment of the black subject in America that is marked by blackness to the Palestinian, to Muslims that are marked by violence as an attribute that justifies everything that uh, uh, is done to them. More importantly, the media is horrendous in how it reports. Mm -hmm. uh, 15 Palestinians killed. It's like, how did they get killed? Mm -hmm. right? We actually have a whole headline that completely does not actually indicate that there was a bombing carried out by Israel on a hospital that killed 15, right? and that these were six children, three women, and so on. They're nameless, faceless, and we use the passive voice. The passive voice is used... And to, to add to it too, Dr. Hatem, they phrased the whole thing as Israel versus Hamas war. Not well, Israel. Yeah, that's another war, phrasing. You know. Again, if you want to fight Hamas, go ahead, have mm -hmm. at it. But the war is against the Palestinians. If you have exactly. military, again, history, military, what you call uh, confrontations occurred. That's the history of mankind from uh, the time of uh, the, the children of Adam. Mm -hmm. So the question is not about having military confrontation. Go at it. Fight the military to military, a regular asymmetrical warfare, whatever. Israel is not fighting Hamas. Israel is actually bombing civilians. Israel is actually committing genocide against civilians. Israel is bombing apartment buildings. Israel killed 89 journalists. Israel is bombing and attacking hospitals. Israel is killing children. That's the language. And unfortunately, our media, again, struck by fair and lovely constantly, they actually reflect and continue to uh, put the uh, uh, perspective of Israel into the landscape. And thus, the Palestinians are in a kangaroo public uh, discourse court, Pierce Morgans and others, having to answer for the fact that they did not actually, they still exist, and they don't want to leave their homes and lands, and thus Israel is basically excused for engaging in this mass killing uh, almost on a, uh, on a daily basis. Uh, even the photo of uh, parading Palestinians, uh, removing, uh, you know, stripping them from their clothes and parading them, uh, people are just still excusing, excusing this act activity. Uh, the spokesperson of uh, Netanyahu's office says, well, it's hot in Gaza. And the journalist who was there did not even pose that question back, right? Does not pose the question back relative that uh, the Palestinians were being stripped and displayed, meaning that this was the, this, these images, this uh, uh, role of the event was distributed by the Israeli press, which means the Israeli military boasting about what is taking place? Because this, they were talking to their people, saying that, you see, we are actually being tough on the Palestinians. Uh, you see, we are uh, successful in our military campaign. All what they're collecting is a bunch of men, women, and children, and parading them as what you call uh, as a victorious uh, step for uh, their uh, killing and uh, almost destruction of the Palestinian society in Gaza. So that's how we need to look and respond to this question and not allow the conversation to be 
uh, in essence, dominated a control for not actually a response, but actually silencing uh, the uh, ability to speak and the ability to narrate Palestinian pain and suffering and Palestinian history. Palestinians have been subject to, to colonization since 1917, since the British arrived and uh, transformed Palestine to the last settler colonial uh, project that is unfolding. And then even the question of violence that's often presented and put out, uh, Muslims, in essence, if you think about even the 20th century, 20th century violence is literally sits at the doorstep of Europe and the United States. World War One is European uh, uh, war and destruction. World War Two, Hitler belongs to it. It's your culture, your civilization, your society. He's, 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 he's your own. Claim him. Mussolini, likewise. Even if we think about Russia and the Russian uh, you know, uh, whether Tsarist Russia and also communism, that's again part and parcel of Western civilization, Western society. And even the last uh, genocide in Bosnia, right? The Bosnian genocide, 1992 to 1995, close to 300,000 Bosnians were uh, killed and slaughtered, uh, including those that were supposedly protected by the United Nations. 60,000 women were subjugated to rape. Uh, wow. during the Bosnian genocide. And yet, every time a Muslim, Arab, and Palestinian speak, the, the microphone, like Paris Morgan's microphone, uh, tries to actually uh, get them to uh, be cornered and, in essence, to demonstrate that they're actually human and being empathetic. Rather than, uh, Pierce Morgan, if you're tough, why don't you go and ask Netanyahu to condemn violence? Why don't you ask uh, Gans to condemn, to condemn violence? Ask him what they participated in the last seven campaigns on Gaza. Ask him to respond and talk to the mothers of the Palestinian children and kids that have been mowed down and killed. Ask them to condemn about this. Talk, go and talk to these uh, you know, Israeli soldiers that are dancing in the mosques and trying to uh, demonstrate how tough they are. Uh, at this point, ask them to speak to uh, the soldiers that went into a, a store, to the toy store, and began to to uh, break this uh, these uh, toys. Uh, I guess you know uh, maybe they have uh, uh, watched the film, the uh, Turtle Ninjas uh, movie, and they think that they have some toys, and they throw some of the toys in there, or actually putting some food supplies on on fire as as the soldiers who were actually parading these uh, Palestinians what was in their mind what what type of inhumanity that they think parading 200 men without any clothes in front of them in underwear as in what did their mother tell them and said to them if they saw them actually standing there parading other men in this way but again these are questions or that even only to add to that Dr. Hatem ask them how would they feel if they were being besieged and then they sent down letters of verses from the Torah warning them of destruction that might come to people who well, are again people. you know these would say that uh, all these questions are questions to be asked but uh, again uh, is the history uh, uh, you know the history of uh, uh, discourse is that the subject uh, of colonization is never allowed to have their uh, narrative their standing their history uh, their experience being centered. So it's always the centering is of the colonial power. So Dr. Hatem, to, to, let's bring that now to the other effects that that can have, right? So, you know, the media and them creating, they never allow the true narrative of the people to be speak spoken about, right? So then what is actually promoted and uh, pervasive throughout the land, it's the false narrative, right? And then you have things. So in the example of with uh, this Philistine genocide that's going on, right? We have the case of uh, 
the the young six-year-old brother uh Wadiya al-Fayumi right Allah who was murdered stabbed to death right his mother was also stabbed I'm not sure if his mother passed away or not but do you know if she no, passed she's away? still alive she's still alive right alhamdulillah then we have the shooting in Vermont of the three Palestinian boys right three Palestinian students who were just on vacation at a birthday party if I'm not mistaken right or they were hanging mm -hmm. right we have care reporting about uh, I forget it was it like 2000 Complaints in 57 days of anti-Muslim and anti-Islamic yeah, anti anti-Palestinian hate, right, against them, right? Attack on pro-Palestinian student groups. Like, you see at Columbia University, they just suspended student justice for Palestine. Uh, the, what's the other one? JVP. What does JVP stand for? Yeah, Allah. Jewish Voice for Peace. Jewish Voices for Peace, right? Uh, Brandeis University in Massachusetts did the same thing with student justice for Palestine. Uh Pro-Palestine rally canceled at uh, University of Arizona. The attacks on the university president of Harvard because she believed that uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is not an anti-Semitic trope. Like these different notions that are birthed from this false narrative. Like, doctor, how do we deal with these or just speak to that in general, please, for us? Well, uh, one is to understand where is it coming from? Uh, I argue that uh, over the arch of a 30-year period, Israel has lost its standing uh, across many elements of the American society, and in particular on college campuses. Uh, and the erosion of uh, Israel's standing is a direct outcome of its belligerency and its violation, constant violation of Palestinian human rights, in essence, uh, being uh, almost uh, unresponsive to basic tenets of uh, normal existence for Palestinians. Uh, uh, Israel have continued to build settlements. Uh, uh, even when Oslo was signed in 1993, there were 130,000 settlers, now close to 750,000 in the West Bank. Uh, it's also the uh, rising of the uh, extreme right wing in Israel, both the religious extreme right wing, but also the secular extreme right wing, uh, that uh, basically uh, uh, continued to push off its own vision of a greater Israel from the river to the sea, right? Mm -hmm. People complaining about the chant, which is actually, they're not even looking that you have a state from the river to the sea that Palestinians are denied uh, their rights from the river to the sea. And then you have success succeeding uh, attacks and assaults on Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank. Uh, that collectively eroded Israel's standing. If I could remind people, when uh, Obama in his last uh, year, when he was negotiating on the uh, uh, Iran deal, uh, if people recall, Netanyahu uh, came to Washington to speak at, uh, in a joint session of Congress. Uh, despite the fact that it is normal for a, uh, an invitation to a head of a state to come from the White House, the president and his Department of State. But Netanyahu, knowing that he wanted to really uh, attack Obama and attack his policy on Iran, worked with the Republican uh, in order to come to uh, Washington to oppose a sitting president policy, right? And I think at that point, he, the Israel began to be more of a bipartisan issue uh, in the United States and increasingly within the Democratic 
side, at least the grassroots and the rank and file, uh, there was a steady shift away from uh, supporting Netanyahu and Israel uh, to being sympathetic with the Palestinians. And as Trump came in and Netanyahu hugged Trump and Trump hugged Netanyahu, hugged Netanyahu, you can't have a worst used car salesman in the same setting as you have a Trump and Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. This actually almost uh, accelerated the eroding of standing of Israel in the United States. Move forward to the George Floyd uh, murder, which I think is a very important point that people fail to recognize. And the attack by Trump and then followed by attack on the Black Lives Matter because of their solidarity with Palestine. And I think people fail to recognize how this shift initially from supporting demands of uh, reform, demands of change that came as a result of the murder to be, to again uh, targeting the black community as the problem. So now becomes whatever people have in terms of debate and discussion, critical race theory becomes the problem because some of the advocates for critical race theory have a strong pro-Palestine perspective. So that campaign also fed into the contestation, especially as curriculum uh, challenges to curriculum occurred because of the inclusion of Palestine, inclusion of Muslims. But it was much uh, uh, what you call a sophisticated way of actually using all kinds of euphemism to try to attack it. And thus we got into the position as the uh, campaign on Gaza in 2021 and the campaign on, not on Gaza, but on the Al-Aqsa Mosque in 2021, followed by another campaign last May, uh, it actually resulted in a major shift at the grassroots, including universities across uh, the, the board. Now, Israel knows that it has lost its position, meaning it, no one actually of their right mind can actually stand up and argue Israel's position. Uh, all of the human rights organizations have actually issued report that Israel is an apartheid state. Uh, uh, everybody has written report about the expansion and continued uh, uh, expansion of footprint of the settlements. Everyone, uh, many reports about the violence of the settlers. Reports about how the Israeli government, Netanyahu, and others are no way under the sun will allow a two-state solution to emerge. Uh, overall. Uh, reports about the, the stealing of water, the cutting of Palestinian trees. So all these are no longer, somebody cannot get up and literally try to argue this. Well. So the only way to do it is to silence those who are presenting the critique. So it becomes, you create these divergentry tactics, the diversion tactics. So instead of actually dealing with uh, the actual unfolding genocide in uh uh, in Gaza and uh, the unleashing of violence of the settlers in the West Bank, you begin to talk about how SJP is connected to Hamas, how they are a front promoting violence on college campuses, how they're making the campus unsafe. This becomes the focal point, And instead of dealing with literally crimes against humanity being committed, uh, genocide being committed, uh, 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 10,000, close to 10,000 children being murdered, uh, you actually parade the presidents of Ivy League, uh, the Penn, uh, Penn State, Harvard, and MIT, and you put them on what you call a McCarthyist type of, of uh, litmus test with cameras on, and you create that the problem 
is actually in there rather than the problem is on the politics and the policies of Israel that is causing people to have a solidarity movement that is deeply, deeply uh, uh, ethical, deeply, deeply moral, and looking at the questions of whether our money should continue to support a state that is violating human rights and engaging in war crimes in front of our eyes. So that's the dynamics in terms of this. And simultaneously, the media take being spoon-fed. Every media report that comes out from Palestine relative to the mainstream U.S. media has to be uh, cleared by the military censor. So we don't get a single report mm-hmm. in the U.S. except that it's actually approved by the Israeli military censors. So in this sense, it becomes amplifying Israeli narrative uh, and thus creating the problem where SJP becomes the problem rather than Netanyahu bombing civilians being the real problem. Instead of actually dealing that Palestinians are literally subject to ethnic cleansing as we speak, you get a president to sit there and talk about whether uh, from the river to the sea chant is calling for the annihilation of the Jewish Mm. people, which is again that Uh, Any time that you're dealing with any population that is subject to to violence has to be addressed. But the violence of the Palestinians is silenced, which means that the real genocide, the real annihilation that is underway is basically the real one is left and the potentiality of a future or a distant one is becoming the problem that all needs to be talked about. Thus, we need to close these organizations uh, in violation of both constitutional and civil rights, let alone academic freedom, which basically uh, we always had in Palestine exception to academic freedom and a Palestine exception to free speech. SubhanAllah. So it's almost like as soon as everybody gets close to figuring out the real thing, they look around, get saying, throw it in their eyes. <laughs> Do real fast. Just something, cause, a, cause some type of hysteria. And we argue about a point that is adjacent, but is not the point itself, just so we waste time and lose focus on what's actually going on. SubhanAllah. It's, 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 a, it's definitely distracting from the uh, ongoing uh, genocides that are falling on the Palestinians. And even in some cases, uh, uh, saying genocide, uh, you cannot say genocide. Some of the tweets and uh, posts that speaks of genocide is actually uh, uh, it's an anti-Semitic term. Uh-huh. Speaking of genocide, you were actually witnessing in front of our eyes, you cannot deny our eyes, the attack on hospitals. That's just like violation of all... Uh, of the norms, even the four Geneva Convention, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our colleagues, uh, our colleague, Ahlam al-Muhtasib, she was at the uh, uh, Communication Association of America. She was supposed to give her presentation. They actually censored her. She was supposed to give part of the presidential report wow. because she was going to include the term genocide. They actually removed her and, and did not allow her to speak. And another complaint against her from uh, her canvas uh, that uh, this using this term is highly problematic and contested. Uh, so you're telling me that you have made a determination, an international uh, uh, determination on your own about genocide, uh, and you want to censor a specialist, right? The people, specialists on genocide actually have written almost, uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's a consensus among genocide uh, legal experts that mm-hmm. what is taking place in Gaza constitute almost the eight stages of genocide. So, but those who are constituting checkpoints in academia and checkpoints in civil society wants to punish those who are trying to say there is a genocide there rather than actually confronting those who are committing the genocide. SubhanAllah. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see how uh, uh, something that is used to spy or maybe distract the people such as social media has proved to be almost, you could say, like the thorn in the side of the 
Zionist elite that have tried to create this story to where it would, they thought sympathy would be had. But, you know, I brought that up in the last interview. We were talking with Sister Ustad Husay Mujedidi, right, also from the Bay. And she was explaining, I was explaining how the George Floyd thing, subhanAllah, it did play a factor as, you know, when people see innocent men, children, people just being murdered and assaulted, they thought of what? They thought of the riots here. They thought of all the police brutality here, especially the young people, right? Because it's like you see it and it's like, wait, this isn't right. Why is this happening to this person? You know, and it's like, subhanAllah, just to uh, see that all brought forward and then to see how it's like, okay, the, the level of influence that uh, these certain groups of individuals has is, is, is very subhanAllah because just to be like, all right, uh, you guys can't use the word genocide, like to stop an entire society from using a word that isn't racially connected to anything. It's not offensive to anyone. It's an actual term used scientifically, academically for things and subhanAllah. But to progress, Dr. Hatem, Let's talk about the solutions now, right? Because we don't want to just talk about the the situation without trying to at least come to answers for what we can do. So the first place we always have to start is Muslimin, of course, is Kitab Allah and the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, right? Yeah. So Dr. Hatim, what's something the Quran says in regards that we can use to facing Islamophobia? And how did the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam deal with Islamophobia? Uh, well, I'm hesitant to use the term back Right, meaning going back to the prophecies, the Prophet faced Islamophobia. I think mm -hmm. the Prophet faced a particular type of rejection of Islam. Right, we have the uh, age of ignorance, the jahiliyyah, mm -hmm. uh, and they use all the tools to try to demonize, uh, uh, to try to harass, uh, to intimidate, uh, to distract from the message. All these were tools. So, I would say the Prophet uh, faced the same structures of demonization, authorizations that we experience thereafter. But the uniqueness of the biography of the Prophet is a unique element that we need to treat it uh, uh, as such. Uh, having said that, if we think about the tools that have been used or uh, in terms, of, I think if we read, let's say, uh, uh, the Surah uh, Al-Munafiqoon the or uh, the chapter of Yusuf, uh, or even the, if we read the Surah Al-Kahf in terms of just to get us uh, oriented uh, in a way, all these points or even the parts of chapter of Al-Baqarah, uh, the second chapter, it gives us a sense that there is always ongoing a struggle between you know justice and injustice and uh, those who uh, want to uh, target individuals that might want to affirm the justness of uh, uh, both the cause that they are in and their faith. So we have many different notions. I, I tend to often go to the narrative of the Prophet Yusuf salam, because it represents for us a multi-layered example. Mm -hmm. Not to say that the Prophet salam, example is not, but it's mm -hmm. the narrative of Yusuf is linked back. Again, it's part of the Quranic tradition. Again, uh, you could say uh, jealousy of status within, uh, within his children being uh, uh, left to die as a young lad uh, in the uh, in the water well, uh, taken and sold into slavery, facing uh, an opposite what you call sexual harassment, uh, 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 making his way and being elevated as a result of his st steadfastness in the face of all this, facing imprisonment, 
and facing the prison industrial complex wrongly imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we could look at all these narratives as a reality of what the human being faced and what the Prophet faced in relations to Mecca. So much so that his own tribe or some members of his own family, his own uncles were, again, uh, turned against him, chased mm-hmm. out from, uh, from Mecca uh, to seek refuge as a muhajir, as a political refugee, but also escaping persecution and also sending his community uh, early on, 83 members, sending them to Abyssinia to seek refuge. Mm-hmm. So we could relate this to the Palestinians, that the Palestinians have been chased out of their homes, chased out of their land, uh, 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 dispossessed, uh, facing also uh, persecution in the places where they sought refuge as well. Mm-hmm. Right? not surprising that you have... Uh, almost daily basis, many Muslims that perish in the Mediterranean trying to cross to escape the calamities that have been facing them, whether it's Sub-Saharan in uh, Central Africa, in Sudan, in uh, Somalia, Eritrea, Chad, and so on, and Libya. So we could actually uh, compare. For me, as I see, uh, whenever I look at the Prophet and the fact that he is a muhajir, right, mm-hmm. and a refugee, and our calendar is actually called al-hijrah, migration, is actually is a, is a way for us to reorient ourselves. Any Muslim should not be in, a, in any business of demonization of an immigrant or refugee. Because doing so, they're actually literally rejecting the epistemic out, uh, outlook of our own Prophet and the early community, which brought the Ansar and the Muhajirin. Right? So whenever I see somebody not recognizing both what's happening with the Palestinians, right, and also biting on the anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment in the U.S. or in Europe, uh, for me, is a big question mark of not understanding the deeper notions of our tradition. So I'm comforted in, in this. The second is also thinking about the, the, the prophet's narrative. It's a success narrative. Yes, there are calamities. There are difficulties. Mm-hmm. Right? But I'm comforted that, you know, uh, that having patience and perseverance in tribulation uh, is one way for us to look that the world is a world of both a calamity, but also a world of mercy. And in essence, uh, at the end of the day, God is a God of mercy, despite the fact we see the calamity that are there. But this should not get us to say, sit down and say, well, I'm waiting for the mercy to come. In the meantime, I'm going to drink in my latte type of attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, God calls us to actually stand on the base of justice. Right? God commands us to justice. And one of the 99 names of God is Al-Adl, the all-just. So as we engage in uh, advocacy for justice, as we engage in speaking against injustice, know that you always are leaning and you are partaking in the divine purpose, which is the justice, uh, because that is the reality that God have wanted us to actually uh, exhibit and uh, reflect God's name and um, God's reality in our own perspective. Under no circumstances that we should actually manifest in ourselves zulm, because God himself prohibited zulm on himself. Mm -hmm. So Islam has only, there's no multiple choice in terms of justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's only justice, and injustice is the absence of justice, and therefore there's no reality to it. So we have to comfort ourselves that you are standing and aligning yourself with the divine in this, and that should be uh, something that we look at both the history of Islam, the history of the Prophet and Muslim tradition uh, throughout uh, history. I would say that we could take the collectivity of Islamic history and measure it against and in comparison to anyone. And I would say we'll come ahead 
overall in all ingredients. So definitely we are in the lowest rung today in our uh, possibly uh, Muslim history, not Islamic history. I tend to distinguish between this. Mm. Islam is actually still flourishing. Mm. Uh, Muslim or Islam is uh, spreading as we speak to all corners of the world. Mm-hmm. Muslim might be weak, but not Islam. So I always distinguish between these two because uh, God guaranteed or says that God sent out the dhikr, the remembrance, which is the Quran and Islam, and he has taken care of protecting it and maintaining it. I worry about Muslims because they got stuck in the dunya, right? And they stuck in, uh, you know, uh, thinking that uh, imitating and uh, having tall buildings and possibly fast cars and bringing uh, all kinds of what you call... uh, 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 people of influence and importance from Hollywood into our corners, that this will make us important. Our importance is with alignment with Allah, not with alignment with the dunya. So I think, and here, as a way for us to look positively, is that we have to reorient ourselves in order to actually manifest the justice of God, right, without actually attributing to ourselves God, because sometimes we take the voice of God and we think that God is speaking rather than you. So we have to be very careful that we trod very carefully on this on this line. So, Doctor, as somebody who is a college professor, what are ways that uh, student groups can counteract Islamophobia or just students in general at an institutional level when they're trying to be active in helping resolve and find peace, help uh, bring peace to our Palestinian brothers and sisters? Uh, one, organize. You have to be, if you don't have a group, create a group. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's a group, join one. Uh, to make a difference, I do. Fi- I do think that one individual can make it can make a difference, but only within the sense of bringing a group around them. Uh, the statement of Fadik mm-hmm. uh, statement Yadullahi ma'al jama'ah is very very important and significant. So join a group. Uh, do also make a uh, an analysis, uh, almost study your campus and see where are uh, the areas where you need to actually make a difference. Uh, universities tend uh, not to attend to the needs of uh, Palestinians, Arab Muslims, and also communities of color in general. So you need to actually be a person that uh, brings about a coalition of students and groups to advocate on a a larger agenda. I do think that it's a broad agenda that has to be in there. Uh, I would say make uh, demands upon the university for changes, make a demand for the university changes on the curriculum level uh, to include uh, Palestine, to include the history of uh, the Palestinians, include the history of uh, Islam and Muslims in its broader sense, and also uh, uh, resist the tendency of universities to bring somebody that to teach on Palestine, Palestinians that often comes from uh, an Israeli university with a very reproducing Israel narrative by means of this. So make sure that this is part of it. I would encourage students uh, to also go and seek support for, uh, you know, mental health support on college campus, uh, mm-hmm. support in terms of uh, accommodation uh, for uh, Arab Muslim Palestinian students. Uh, also, get the university to invest resources uh, in connecting to uh, Arab Muslim uh, Global South universities uh, to create exchange program. I do think uh, once the war stops in Gaza. I think all these universities that often speak about diversity, inclusion, and so on, the time for them to walk the talk that they have, get them to actually initiate programs to rebuild the Gaza universities, uh, 
the uh, Israeli army has demolished and bombed into smithereens uh, Gaza's universities, uh, bombed the libraries. Uh, so this is the time for universities to adopt libraries and simultaneously begin to critique the university relationship with Israeli universities that have been engaged in complicity with uh, Israel on a variety of fronts and uh, make sure that this is also part of the case. So I think there's a lot of work ahead of us as student uh, students, faculty, staff on college campuses to come up with programs uh, to proactively uh, not only rebuild, but rebuild the uh, intellectual capacities. Uh, some faculty, I would say, I would encourage them to begin to offer classes online for some Palestinians. Uh, mm. Again, uh, whether it's being MIT, Harvard, Berkeley, or others, uh, faculty to volunteer to offer courses because the university have been demolished. So online courses might be the way as a transition uh, to try to address uh, those. Uh, maybe universities will sponsor restocking of the library and the collections for universities in Gaza. Uh, and I know some of the people who are in the healthcare care uh, and doctors who are preparing to go to Gaza for uh uh, medical treatment, because it's not only you have uh, close to 22,000 deaths, but you're going to get closer to 75,000 injured, uh, aside from those that uh, would face uh, medical complication as a result of the lack of clean water and lack of uh, food and nutrition. We are at a crisis period right now relative to the well-being of the population. SubhanAllah. Well, Dr. Hatam, I guess last question, you know, before we wrap up, you know, Let's say, in general, right, what are effective ways Muslims can bring public awareness and understanding uh, uh, of Islam and themselves in this situation? You know, what are different ways, just in general? Well, I think the field of uh, outreach and speaking to people is wide open in the United States. Uh, there are many, many different opportunities. Again, whether you choose to do a protest, you could actually seek to have a regular lecture series in your public library uh, that focuses on certain elements. Uh, I do think that, uh, you know, even during Christmas period, rather than often people trying to, to complain and, uh, and not recognize the Christian community, actually it'd be an opportunity for a dialogue and a discussion about Muslims attending to some of the needs of the Christian community and being counters of dialogue. Uh, I do think that uh, at the university, there's many opportunities to do so. Uh, uh, Muslims don't take uh, uh, benefit of the public fairs that occurs, right? especially during the summer period. I think Muslims can set up a booth and a table and engage. And sometimes I think uh, the booth and the table, rather than what you call giving people a long lecture, maybe the food would be a way to break in because uh, the Prophet says, so food is a good ingredient and mashallah you know we could say that the muslims have a very very good array of food quality that can be a major encounter uh, in, in in a way of what does it mean to have a halal food what does the preparation look like and even some recipes that people have in different places uh, i think ramadan uh, should be also utilized as a way for uh, people to speak to other people uh, you know the uh, as you know, the rage in the so-called uh, uh, weight loss programs are all focused on intermittent fasting. Well, mm -hmm. the Muslims have what you call wrote the book on intermittent fasting okay. called Ramadan. Yeah. Right? Right. So how we could actually create that an avenue to speak about Islam is by speaking about that this is actually a very 
1400 year tested me mechanism of reorienting and re cleansing your system and how to become a purposeful person in fasting. So there are many avenues. I think the problem is that uh, we don't look at the avenues. We are stuck sometimes with the text mm. and forgetting the context where we could be very effective. And I think this is where we have to navigate uh, to possibly reduce our uh, uh, projecting the uh, context uh, as an outgrowth of only the text, meaning that we read the text with its historical signification rather than looking at how to deliver the text in its particular signification in the current period. So I, you know, even setting up uh, an, uh, a place outside of the shopping center on, uh, on busy times where, uh, you know, I, I just on the side, I think, uh, you know, mm -hmm. if you think about the nation of Islam has been very effective in their outreach mm -hmm. because they go where the people are at mm -hmm. and they engage and ask questions. Often I'm very critical, let's say, in MSA, they sit behind the table, uh, I call it the Dawah jacket. They put the jacket and they just sit there waiting for a customer. It's the difference between going out because you think you have a good product versus sitting in there and waiting for the customer. Mm -hmm. uh, not to compare it, but that's in essence... You have to be out there. You have to actually engage, see where people are at, and find avenue to actually create a common conversation. Wow, Barakulafik, Dr. Hudson. These were all great points. And, you know, I think the, the biggest things we should take away definitely as Muslimin who are striving to help make change and help our brothers and sisters in this uh, very unfortunate situation is, like you said, we have to take ourselves from our high horses, right? Come down to a level of where we're able to roll up our sleeves and do actual work and actually speak to the people and actually tell our narratives and also be able to stand objectively and view the uh, ourselves through the lens through which those who do not like us view us to get an understanding and see how to work from that perspective, counteract that, right? Not seek validation, like, please accept me, but see, oh, this is why they don't like, so this is what we'll do to combat that, right? And then also to, to, to know that the, the media is against us, right? These narratives are out there that paint us and betray us a certain way. So we just have to accept that reality and look to ways to counteract that again also, right? Because this is something working against us 24-7, day and night. And, you know, like you said, to, to just be active, you know, we can't sit down and say, all right, well, I have the Quran. Yes, this is, uh, this is the Quran. Yes. Okay, come, let me tell you about the Quran. No, no, we have to go to the people, like the Prophet did, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and tell people about the Quran, right? Tell people about Islam. But then also, we uh, 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 should follow and look at the stories of the, the, the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or Yusuf, Alaihi Wasallam, and look and see what can we learn from these stories? What can we take and implement in our lives, you know? So before we get off, Doctor, this is something that I always do. Um, Jazakallah khair for uh, uh, speaking with me today. Thank you. I always ask everybody before you get off. Um, before you get off, please teach us one thing, one ayat or one sunnah or one hadith, something that we can implement and people listening can implement in their daily lives so me and you can collect ajr from this, inshallah. Well, uh, one of the hadiths that I, I love and I always use is the hadith of Ar-Rahmah because Again, in the middle of calamity, this tool for me, Ar-Rahimun Yarhamu Man Fil Ard Man Fil Sama. The merciful ones, Ar-Rahimun, the merciful ones, the one in the heaven will show you mercy. Be merciful upon the people of the earth, so the ones in the heavens will show you mercy. So in these calamities, is to look at the world with the eye of mercy, because mercy is one of the foundations. That's why we repeat it. 
almost every time you recite the Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, we speak of the merciful, the beneficent, as the overarching umbrella of our tradition. So uh, for me, that would be something that I would uh, impart for us to comfort ourselves while being in the world of calamity, difficulty, and uh, tribulations. Uh, once again, Barakallah Fiqh, thank you. Jazakallah khair. Uh, I like to say, everybody, please donate to uh, Mercy Without Limits, please. Like I said before, we're here to save lives. We want to help uh, our brothers and sisters in this calamity. Also, please donate and support American Muslims for Palestine, for Palestine, I should say, right? American Muslims for Palestine, AMP. And if there's, if, if you've donated to those causes and there are other causes with many, there's so many calamities in the world. May Allah make it easy for all of the people who are suffering them. Um, Please, wherever that is, whether it be in different parts of Africa, parts of Asia, parts of Europe, America, here, the local neighborhood, wherever you can, please support whatever causes, humanitarian causes you can. Please support them, especially my Muslim brothers and sisters. This is heavily emphasized in our deen. This is a part of our tradition. It's an act of ibadah. Please do this. Um, once again, if you guys have any uh, other topics or any guests you guys want us to have, please drop in the comments. Um, Dr. Hatem, is there anything you want to share before we get off? No, thank you. And just, you know, keep in touch on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, also have a whole bunch of articles that you could read on Palestine. Oh, drop your social media tag, Dr. What's the doc uh, social media so they can find you? So I can find you too. Actually. Uh, Hatem, Hatem Bazian, just my Twitter and Instagram. Oh, inshallah. Inshallah. Please follow the doctor. All right, brothers and sisters, this is another episode of Remastered. Please also remember December Mass Igna Convention. Please come. Chicago. We're going to be there. Inshallah. I'll see you there. Great time. Oh, doctor, you'll be there. Mashallah. I definitely would love to meet you. Inshallah. Love to. Inshallah. So, brothers and sisters, thank you again for listening to another episode of the Remastered Podcast, hosted by me, your brother, Abdullah Freeman. We'll see you guys later. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam.